0: So we were standing around the kitchen island in the fire department. We were making BLTs. We were scratching our daily scratch tickets. We all went in on like a little pool. We would scratch some scratch tickets and see if we won anything. We'd split up the winnings. The tones dropped and a call came in from dispatch uh, for a well-being check. Uh patient's mother had called and said that she was unable to reach her son, This was an adult son, and she was an elderly woman. She was probably 85 or 90 years old. She said that the last time she was unable to contact him for an entire day, he had attempted suicide. The address of the call came over the radio, and my partner that day told me that he had responded to the same address for a man who had tried to kill himself in the bathtub about a year previous. He had filled the bathtub with ice and water. He climbed in and he slid his wrists. My partner described it as he had made soup out of himself. And that's a pretty vivid description to me, at least, as we're approaching the scene. We pull up on the scene. There's a rookie cop in front of the house, and he has a notebook out. He's taking notes. I get out of the truck. My partner gets out of the truck, and we start walking in through the front door. This is a four-apartment building. There's two apartments on the ground floor. There's two apartments on the second floor. There's also a basement. We walk into the building through the front door and we walk straight to the back of the hallway and the patient's apartment was on the left-hand side. We walked into the patient's apartment and we looked around. We didn't see anything amiss. The TV was off, the windows were locked, the door was locked when we let ourselves into it. Nothing was out of place. We're getting ready to clear up and tell dispatch that there was no patient found and we're returning in service. We're ready to go smash these BLTs down. Someone suggested that we look down in the basement just to cover all bases. I walked down into the basement first, then was my captain behind me who had showed up on scene. Behind him was my partner. Behind him was that new rookie cop. We walked down the stairs into the basement and we took a left around the stairs to double back on him. There was a washer and a dryer down there. Nothing amiss in the first room. We walked into the second room. There's a big open room. Nothing amiss in that room. But in the way back corner of that room was another door. It led to a dirt cellar, like a small room with dirt floors and stone walls. This house was built in like the early 1800s, and this was like a creepy cellar. We start walking towards that cellar, and when I was able to stand in front of the door to actually peer into the room, I could see legs hanging from the, like, the figure of a man hanging from a ceiling, but with space between his feet and the floor. It was like an unearthly feeling. It was weird to see that. It wasn't what I expected to see down there i have been to tons of hangings at that point. For some reason, this one stands out. I approached the doorway, and I realized that this man had committed suicide, and that he was very clearly dead. His neck had to be over a foot long, completely distorted, deformed, and extended. He was hanging in front of a chair, an upholstered chair that was on the floor in that room. It was the only piece of furniture in that room. And he was hanging in front of it with a green cord wrapped around his neck about five times it had to be. And it went up to these flimsy little pipes, like a group of three pipes. They were small pipes. They were separated from each other. But the rope made a big looping arc around them, and it was wrapped around these pipes like four or five times, so it almost pinched them shut in the middle. I can see it now as I talk about it, and he was, like, hanging from this these pipes in a way that you could tell that there was no way he wanted that rope to break. He was so serious about what he was going to do. It looked like he had climbed up onto the chair, tied himself to the ceiling, and jumped off the chair. I can't imagine it was a long death, and I'm sure he didn't struggle because how long his neck was, I was positive that he jumped off the chair and it snapped his neck and that's why it was so distorted and elongated. So we had found our patient and there was not a way that we could work him because he, was, he had clear obvious signs of death and what happens then is that I write a report that says why I didn't start CPR, what obvious signs of death that I found. And then, I give that report to the police officer on scene, the police officer calls the medical examiner, and the police officer maintains the scene until the medical examiner gets there to investigate the death. To everyone on scene, it was a clear and obvious suicide, but we're unable to determine the cause of death. We can only determine whether or not the patient is viable. I'd worked with my captain for a very long time, and we had kind of the same sense of humor. We used to joke morbidly about this stuff. Probably we shouldn't have, but sometimes we talked about it while we were on scene. We tried to keep everything light, comfortable. We didn't want anything to get too dark because we had to work the rest of the shift, and we had to make sure we were in a good headspace to be able to handle these calls as they came in. So to get into that room, because the patient was hanging directly in front of that doorway, I had to put my left hand on his right knee because he was facing away from the door. And I had to push him to the side and step into the room. So I held him to the side. My, My captain and myself stepped into the room, leaving my partner and the police officer outside of the room. I stepped into the room and I turned around to face the patient and he was swinging because I had just moved him out of the way. So I put my left hand now on his right knee and I stopped him from swinging. I reached into his pocket and I took out his ID. I got his information. I confirmed that it was the patient that we were looking for. I made sure that this guy on the ID was the same guy that was hanging there. And when I looked at his face His eyes were, like, a quarter of the way open, and his pupils and irises were looking directly under his eyelids at me. It was like they made eye contact with me. His pupils were fogged over and like, a glossy, like, a a glaze. Uh, It looked like they were looking at me, and for... Quite some time after, every time I closed my eyes to go to sleep, to do anything, I could see this guy's eyes in my face. I tried to draw him one time, but I'm not a very good artist, so I don't know, that was weird, but another firefighter came down from the engine, and he was very gung-ho, a super helpful guy. He had no medical experience, so he didn't realize right away that this guy was very deceased, and beyond the point of helping. He asked me if I needed a cervical collar to stabilize the guy's neck, and I jokingly said to him, you better grab two. Now, anyone that's in any kind of healthcare knows that you'll never put two cervical collars on a patient. This guy's neck is crooked, it's long, it's completely broken, and it's snapped. There's no good that a cervical collar is gonna do And in reality, we're going to leave this guy hanging from the ceiling. We're going to go back to the base, and we're going to eat our BLTs. So, he leaves, and I thought that he had gotten the joke. Probably a poor taste joke, because this guy's still hanging dead from the ceiling, and we're talking about him very lightly. But it's a way that we cope, and it's a way that we process some of the stuff that we see because there's no way to be on scene, it's inappropriate to be on scene and to break down and to actually feel emotion over this guy's passing, so he was obviously a very sad dude, this is like a super tragic story, like this guy's life ended in such a bad way, and I'm standing there in this dirt cellar, Joking about it to take away that eerie, empty feeling that I have and to get rid of the feeling that this guy's eyes are giving me. I just put my hand on him and touched him. I swung him to the side. Such a weird feeling, you know? So we're downstairs and I start copying down the information that I need. I start talking to the new cop about what I see on scene, why I'm doing things the way I'm doing them. And down comes this firefighter that I had just talked to. He comes down the stairs into the basement with two sea collars. He rips them open, puts them up next to each other, and goes to put them on the guy's neck. I had to explain to him that I wasn't serious when I said two sea collars. And the look on this firefighter's face was so disappointed that I would make light and joke with him about a deceased patient, he hadn't yet had time to, like, build that, like, morbid sense of humor that we all had, the rest of us had at least. He was still innocent, still fresh, still impressionable, still so gung-ho, trying to do the right thing, trying to help this patient, is a tragic story, and it made me... It made me think a whole different way about the scenes that I show up on and the people that I joke about and the way that I make light of these emergencies because the reason I got into this field in the first place was try to do the right thing. I never realized in the beginning what I would have to do and what I would have to become and the way I would have to act and think and talk just in an attempt... To process some of this stuff. We never cut him down. We never found out why he killed himself. Never talked to his mother again. We stood in that basement. We filled out that report. I went to the truck. I printed out the paper. I handed it to the cop. And I left the scene with the cop. The cop was supposed to stand in the basement with that patient until the medical examiner got there. But because no one was there... And he was such a rookie cop. I mean, I can't even say I would do any differently. He came and stood outside of the house, in the front of the house, out of the basement, down the hallway, out the front door. And he waited out there for the medical examiner to get there because he couldn't bear to be in that basement with that patient. Right where I was just joking and laughing. We cleared up from the call. I got back in my ambulance. The captain got back in the engine. We drove back to the bay. We finished scratching our tickets. We ate our BLTs. We turn and burn on to the next one. We have a whole shift left to work. If you let that affect you, you're not going to be able to run the next call. So deal with it. Buck up. And when you go to bed tonight, know that there was nothing you could have done know that you're going home and that you need to be mentally ready for your real life that's still going on. Is it right to joke about such a tragic situation? Maybe it is and maybe it's not. The general public, a layman, someone who doesn't know what they're hearing, if there was a fly on the wall that was listening, they would probably say that that was completely wrong. But for me to keep going, for me to keep running these calls, for me to go home to my family and not break down, I had to make light of it. From that day on, I thought a little bit differently about it, and I thought a little bit more about what I heard on scene. These calls add to us. They give us a little bit more clinical experience. They give us a little bit more life experience. Maybe they make us a little bit cold. Maybe they make us react to situations a little differently. But they are what they are. What happened, happened. Can't change it now. Take another step forward. Get back into the truck. Respond to the next call. Make another mistake. Keep it moving. Turn and burn. That's all I have to say about that.